This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Okay, today we're going to talk about the parable of 10 minus. But before we get there, uh, I just wanted to tell you guys a little bit about how we came to this. So over the course of next uh, few episodes, we're going to talk about, did Jesus dehumanize? And how how do we come to this? So as you guys probably all heard, uh, Andy released his new book, Reclaimed. And the subtitle of it, oh, there we go. Andy is holding it up. The subtitle of it is um, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. And we started advertising it on Facebook and we started getting some. That's the title that we used to play with. The title is actually How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. That's okay. I do. I make that mistake all the time. (laughs) <laughs> okay, there's the subtitle. I should know this. Uh, thanks for the correction. And so we started uh, advertising it, getting the word out on Facebook, and people started commenting on it, mostly positive, but the first ones to comment on it were actually mostly negative. We were surprised about that. Yeah, there's plenty of people that dedicate themselves online to anything Christian, and yeah, and so you know I, we've come to expect that, and we at some level I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised how much, but yeah, so there were some challenges that were brought up, and some of them I think are valid and need to be discussed. Yeah, and so uh, w- what I found interesting was because I saw some of those comments. I try not to look at these comments, but curiosity got to me, and so I took a look at a few of those and. Um, just right from the outset, I just wanted to comment on how I just found it, found it really bizarre that this book just came out and it's like the day it was released and people are commenting on this uh, just purely based on the subtitle, right? How Jesus restores our humanity in a dehumanized world. And people are going after it saying, you know, oh, Jesus wasn't all that great either. And they start citing some scripture verses, which we're going to talk about over the course of the next few episodes. But I just found it really bizarre. For one, clearly, these people haven't read the book. Okay, so this is coming from people who haven't read the book, don't know the argument that you're making in the book. So that's one thing. And secondly, now, if you think about Jesus, what's the kind of teaching that he's best known for? Right, it's the kind of stuff that you find in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. You know, love your enemies, pray for those who who persecute you, go that extra mile to help others. Even as he's hanging on the cross, he's like, "Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Please don't hold it against them." That's the kind of image that that we all grew up with, and and I would assume that whoever these people are. Uh, if they're at all familiar with Christianity, that's the kind of portrait of Jesus that they likely grew up with. And the fact that even before they get to read your book, they come at it with certain verses that are taken out of context to attack the character of Jesus. I'm generally a cordial person, but when I looked at it, I'm just like, this is intellectually lazy and this is intellectually dishonest. Um, So I just wanted to register my complaint there. Um, What was your reaction reading all of this? For me, uh, that was kind of secondary for me was the intellectual dishonesty. Mm-hmm. For me, I was actually just more frustrated by how rude people are, mm, uh, yeah. how vulgar people are, and how you know pe- people want, here's a book that's supposed to be positive, supposed to be encouraging. But man, there are just some people out there who just hate Christianity so much they hate Jesus so much that just any opportunity to take a shot at Jesus uh, or a Christian is, is something that that they're that they're going to do. And and as I was actually reading a lot of these comments, and I've had to delete a lot of them because they're so vulgar uh, and just so unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you know, we've we've hidden these comments. Uh, I just was thinking to myself, man, I hope atheists don't encounter this. Mm. I hope that there aren't. Christians out there that just dedicate themselves to anything atheism to say, 
rude, nasty, and demeaning, you know, remarks mm -hmm. to these people. Uh, it, it's so, so the whole reason I wrote the book has been illustrated with these comments and how easy it is online to just say rude and horrendous things to people, uh, to one another, uh, to demean one another, and how we've got to stop mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. and, and I found it really ironic, actually. One of the comments talked about how, you know, our world today is more humanized than ever. And that's a fact, right? Stop fear mongering. Um, so immediately what I picked up from that is this guy is probably a fan of guys like Steve Pinker, who wrote the book, remember, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he purports to show that our world is getting better and better in terms of, you know, violent crimes and things like that. And just found it really ironic. I'm just like, we're, we're living in a more humanized world than ever. And here's a guy who's just coming to tear at you, right? And, and Christian, in a very kind of a rude way. Um, so, yeah, I, I found that really, really interesting. And interestingly enough, when you look at all that's going on in the world right now, I mean, I don't find anybody questioning the, the thesis of the book that dehumanization is taking place and that dehumanization is bad. And so this book, it's at the topic of humanization and how important that is. And I'm making the case that Jesus humanizes. And so I do think it's valid, although almost every single comment I received was rude and vulgar, uh, there there was some people who just left verses and just said, in, which I just took tacitly to say, hey, that verse, Jesus doesn't seem to be humanizing in that verse, right? And so, I, I want to deal with that. Okay. So, we're going to talk about one of those. I think we've picked up three of them largely, and this is one of them. So, this comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. This is the parable of the 10 minas. And just to give a quick overview of it, this is where Jesus tells the uh, story of this nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom, comes back, and then he holds his uh, stewards to account, his servants to account, because he the nobleman gives them some material wealth before, before he leaves, so he expects some kind of a return. So this is what it says, uh, starting from verse 11. As they heard these things, he, that is Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, uh, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So here you go. So that's the parable and likely the the verses where people get tripped up over are the last two. One is, well, to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
And the next one is, well, as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, so uh, what's happening here then is people generally look at this parable and rightly equate the nobleman with Jesus. So this nobleman is, it's kind of an allegorical thing, right? It's referring to Jesus. And so then for the nobleman to say, you know, slaughter these enemies before me, right? Those kinds of things. That's what people find troubling. So uh, let me toss it over to you, Andy. What are your thoughts on this? So what I wanted to do as we look at this, and I'm actually really looking forward to talking about this with you today, Steve. This is something we don't get to do enough on on the podcast, I think, Mm. is just dive into scripture together. And I really want to help listeners to understand how do we study the Bible? What does it look like to interpret a passage like this? Because, uh, you know, this passage is troubling. Jesus is painted in a bad light in this story, right? He's, He's a harsh ruler that takes what he didn't sow and to those who don't follow him, he wants them brought out before him and, and and slaughtered, right? And you're like, man, that's not the that's not the picture of Jesus I remember in Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> Gentle Jesus, <laughs> meek and mild. <laughs> <laughs> so, on, in some ways, I think this is an important scripture that needs to be thought about because mm-hmm. you know you come across this, and I, and I think for a lot of people, they might read this. And they'll just kind of continue on in their reading. Maybe this is maybe this is the passage of their devotions for the day, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. well, that was disturbing as they move along. But one of the challenges that I find, and this isn't always the case, but what we're going to find with this one is this one is a challenging text to look at because it requires some work and is not immediately obvious what's happening here, that there's some depth to it, and you're going to have to stop. You're going to have to read it a couple times. And this is the most important thing. You've got to read it in its context. And I mean that in a couple different ways. Steve, you and I, over the years, have had people contact us many times asking us, you know, how do I interpret this passage of Scripture? What do I do with this? Yeah. And my answer is the same over and over again. Have you read that piece of scripture in its context. And by that, I first just mean, have you read the verses around it? I mean, here's one of the problems we have, and it's important to appreciate. The Bible was not written with verses. Those verses, even the chapters, those were added afterwards as a help, but sadly, they can become a hindrance. One of the... One of the um, analogies that my professor in seminary gave, and I think this is helpful, is that people tend to want to read the Bible from a worm's eye view versus a bird's eye view. And and Mm. the idea that he was getting across was simply that when we read the Bible from a bird's eye view, we're taking in the whole of Scripture, whereas if you read from a worm's eye view, what you tend to do, and I see this so often, is you tend to start with one word. I mean, how often do you see that where people in very much treat the Bible as like a magic book, right? And they'll flip to one passage and put their finger down and they'll start with that word and then they'll work backwards, right? What does that word say? What does that sentence say? You know, uh, and then maybe they'll go to the paragraph or, or the chapter. You know, often they, they don't. And then they get confused going, mm-hmm. man, I, I, I really don't understand what's being said here. Or they'll end up interpreting it incorrectly. One of my points is this. Some people, I think, believe that hermeneutics is like some sort of apologetic sleight of hand and that what we're going to do in the next couple minutes here is we're going to, you know, do some sort of trickery as we try to get Jesus out of this desperate situation, you know, that he somehow has found <laughs> himself in. But that's not what's happening here. What what I want to encourage listeners to understand is that hermeneutics is is just the science of interpretation, which is what you apply any time that you read any sort of literature, whether that be a blog article, Wikipedia, the newspaper, you know, your textbook at school, whatever it is, you're going to apply an interpretive framework to understand that specific genre. And that's what we're going to do here today. And, and Steve, honestly, from my 
years pastoring, 20 years pastoring, 20 years studying God's word, interpreting it and preaching it, right? Here's what I here's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned honestly, especially when you come to the gospels. Often people think that the gospels were written such as this one by Luke by what Luke could remember. He wasn't an eyewitness, so what Luke could remember for say that that was told to him. This kind of an idea, uh, you know, in his investigation, as he tells us that he's done, he's done this investigation and that this is of his investigation, what he could remember or something to that effect. But that is not what you have. What you have, and the writers often will tell you this, John tells you this explicitly at the end of his gospel. He says, listen, lots more happened. I'm telling you what I want you to know about what happened. And and that's what you be you begin to see as you read the gospels over the years, you begin to realize, oh, they're not just writing these haphazard, oh, I remember Jesus told this parable, or, you know, I'll just write that one down. These are placed here specifically. They've chosen these ones to tell you because they think that they're important in what they're communicating. And so, that changes the way you read it. Because now you come to Luke 19 and go, okay, why did Luke choose this? And why did he place it here in the way that he did? So, that means then that I want to make sure I take Luke chapter 19 in its entirety. And so, often when I come across a verse that I'm unsure of or a parable that I'm like, wow, I'm not sure what's being taught here. First thing that I do, I back up. I might even back up a couple chapters and make sure I'm getting in the right context. And then I'm going to read past it because that passage is finding itself in a con- in the context of that scriptural passage. And that's going to be key to understanding what's being communicated, and that's true not only of the Bible, but anything you read. That's always the case. A small example of that is, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's still relevant here, is when you read the epistles, like for example, 1 Corinthians, here's Paul addressing all of these things that were told to him, like all these problems that are happening, say, in the church in Corinth and things like that. And so he's writing now, Often, this is likened to like hearing the one end of the phone conversation. Sometimes it can be a bit tricky figuring out the conversation that's actually taking place because you don't have the full context of what the other person is saying, so on and so forth. And so all all that to say, it's really important to have the context. And sometimes when you, you know, don't take context into account, like you just can't get it, like you don't understand it, especially if you consider the fact that we are removed by geography and by time hundreds of years, even you know over a thousand years from the gospel writers. And so, I mean, even today, like I, I sometimes tell the story of how I proposed to my wife um, and I, I proposed to her, she said, yes. Yeah. So, I call my brother and we had this bit of a kerfuffle, right? Because at this point, my brother had met her once. He knew her as my girlfriend at the time. But I called him and I said, hey, Peter, just wanted to let you know that I got engaged. And he says, with who? I'm just like, well, remember, Sharina, you met her a couple of weeks ago. We were pretty serious. We're, we're engaged. And again, he pauses for a second. He says, yeah, I know. But with who? And I'm like, what on earth is going on here? So we went back and forth a little while. And then what I figured out is, oh, okay. So he's he's thinking like engagement, like Korean style, where typically it's not just a verbal, hey, will you marry me? Yes, I will marry you. Engagement is done. There, you actually gather your friends and family and have a small ceremony saying you we wish to get married, you know, because in the Eastern mind, marriage is a lot more of a union between families, right? So it's not just something that you do between the two of you. And so I was like, oh, like, that's what he's thinking. That's why he's asking with who, like, who did you invite to this ceremony? And why was I not invited? So he actually took offense to that, right? And this is between two brothers with an immigrant background who maybe adapted to the Western world in a slightly different way, right? To a different degree kind of thing. If that happens between 
two brothers in a single family who comes from the same background, that can happen. You have to be even even more careful when you're reading stuff that was written two millennia ago almost. Um, and it comes from a different culture, right? So you have to kind of take that into account as you're reading it. So it doesn't help to read all of our, for example, modern sensibilities and superimpose it on the text, right? Read it into the text. And of course, it does make sense. And now, listeners, before we continue, a message from our very own Steve Kim. Hi, listeners. This is Steve. If you didn't know this already, my wife, Sharina, my two children, my aunt Tavin, and I moved to the Edmonton area to be closer to family. It's been great to see, especially our children, thrive being close to their aunt, uncle, cousins, and grandparents. This also means that the work of Apolitics Canada is expanding as I am here to serve Alberta and beyond. If you enjoy and appreciate our ministry and would like to support the work we're doing, there are three things you can do for us. Number one, please pray. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, our work is in vain. Number two, please consider giving financially to the work of Apologetics Canada. You can do that by going to apologeticscanada.com slash donate. That's apologeticscanada.com slash donate. Number three, if you enjoy this podcast and if you haven't done so already, please leave a five-star rating and a positive review. This helps us get the word out. Thank you for your partnership. We can't do this work without you. And now back to our podcast. Well, hey, hey, let's jump into this passage yeah. and uh, let's let's show what's being said here. Okay, so the first thing then, given everything that we've just talked about that I'm going to do as I approach this passage, is I'm going to start at Luke 19, verse 1. Mm-hmm. And what happens when when you jump in there is you see that Jesus has entered Jericho and, and as he's passing through, that he encounters Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. We're told that he's a, a little guy, gets up on a tree so that you can see Jesus. Jesus sees him, points him out. And says, um, uh, verse 5, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And and Jesus goes to this chief tax collector's house, somebody who's absolutely hated mm-hmm. in the community. I, I mean, hated. Imagine if, you know, China took over Canada and there are some Canadians who actually work for the Chinese government collecting taxes, heavy oppressive taxes to fund whatever war campaign that they have. I mean, we would hate that person, right? And especially in that culture where, you know, kinship is so strong, that sort of national identity, if you will, we're Jewish people, right? That, that is so strong to betray one of your own It's in that way. I mean, of course you're hated. And this is like, he's not even just the tax collectors, he's a chief tax collector. And so he He's, of course, hated even more. That explains why, you know, when there are so many people wanting to see Jesus, they're not going to let Zacchaeus see Jesus, right? They're kind of they're not going to be groomed for this guy. Yeah, there's, yeah, and so he has to climb up on the tree. So yeah, and yet Jesus, you know, engages with this guy who's working for the enemy or with the enemy at least, swindling the people from their money, and goes mm-hmm. to his home, and Zacchaeus repents of what he's done of cheating people. And comes to places, his trust in Jesus as, as he's seeking to make things right. And Jesus says, listen, today salvation has come to this house, right? And, and they're, you know, they're really celebrating the, this life that's being changed through the power of Jesus that's at work even in broken people like Zacchaeus, whom the disciples are really surprised that Jesus is, is hanging out with this kind of guy. Mm-hmm. But notice then what happens. Because we could stay there and talk more about that, but we got to keep moving because we're looking at this yep. this parable. And we read then in verse 11 that while they were listening to this, so notice that it's indicating to you, this hasn't stopped. We started with Zacchaeus, but we're continuing here. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Okay, so he's about to tell them a story that's going to teach them a principle. Why? Well, because they were near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So, notice that the that Luke is painting for you the context of what's taking place here. We were talking with Zacchaeus, a guy whose life has been just transformed by Jesus. Now, notice that, by the way, we've already seen in Luke people's lives transformed by Jesus through miraculous ways uh, in their physical healing. But now we're seeing somebody who's miraculously healed in in their heart. And, and, and it's this, this heart change, which I would say, by the way, is even a greater miracle than when Jesus heals the leper um, 
or the blind. Just to quickly, in the context of what we're talking about here with, you know, people posting all these comments on Facebook and how Jesus doesn't humanize. I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking at this. If you had just taken the time to read what came before the parable of the 10 minus, you see Jesus hanging out with people that are outcasts, basically, who, who the rest of the Jewish society doesn't want. This is the kind of a person that Jesus comes to and says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And like, these these are the kinds of people that these are my people. These are the kinds of people that I'm going to hang out with. Yeah. And I'm just like, how is this not humanizing? And you just want to pick that part that is a bit challenging to say, well, Jesus isn't all that great. Uh, again, you know, that's uh, another complaint of mine. And I think that's such a great point because what we're going to see now as we look at the story is that this story is going to communicate the exact opposite of what people are anticipating. Instead of being dehumanizing, this is actually humanizing. And given what happened now, the context is, is that they're near Jerusalem and people are anticipating that the kingdom is going to appear at once, that this is going to be happening imminently. And in particular, it's just one of those things that you have to remind yourself that this land is under Roman occupation. They are being ruled by a foreign oppressor. Now, you need to understand then, when Jesus tells a story that he's going to seek to teach by, that does not mean then that every aspect of that story is going to be the teaching principle, first of all. And second of all, it doesn't mean that this story necessarily is about Jesus in its entirety. Now, notice what's happening then, Mm -hmm. that they're near Jerusalem and that we hear that a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king. Now, this is why this passage is a little bit more challenging to, uh, to understand than normal. But yet, I would still say, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, that you could still get the context of this, even without the historical context. But this is a passage that is best read with a little bit of historic understanding of what's taking place because the people would have had the history. They would have understood immediately what Jesus is talking about because this is a common thing to have where a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king. This is exactly what happened with King Herod. And when King Herod dies, he seeks to Uh, give his kingdom to his son, Archelaus. And this is what happens with Archelaus. He, He has to go to Rome to seek Augustine's approval to be the king of Jerusalem, of, of this, of these lands. Of Judea. Judea, yeah. thank you. Of Judea, the lands of, of his father. The problem is, though, is Rome has control of it. Rome is only going to allow a ruler to be the proctor, which is common that they did this. Rome often would do this, would allow people to be self-governing. Mm-hmm. However, to be self-governing, you had to keep the peace. Mm. Archelaus is not able to keep the peace. And in fact, he there's an uprising and he kills 3,000 Jews during a Passover demonstration. And people are furious with him. They're so upset that when Archelaus goes to Rome to get approval to be king, they send a, we're told, Josephus, a first century historian, tells us this. There was a 50 person delegation that was sent to Rome in opposition to Archelaus that he not be made king. And in fact, he isn't made king. He's made uh, lower than a king, he's made an, an, Ethnarch. an ethnarchy. Yeah, yeah, an ethnarch. It's an ethnarchy. And in fact, the kingdom of Judea is split up between Herod's three sons. That's why when you're reading the Gospels, it starts to provide a little bit more context when you begin to realize that Archelaus is over Jerusalem only, but you'll experience Herod's other sons, such as uh, Agrippa, who's up in the Galilee region. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get into some interesting things that start to make more sense. Because Archelaus couldn't keep the peace, even when he was granted this provision, uh, within just a few years, he was ousted 
completely. And a Roman military governor, which is called a prefect, was put in place. And that's where we have Pontius Pilate that enters the scene. And you get that moment, which by the way, one of the the things that um, a prefect would have overseen was capital punishment. And so, when they want Jesus murdered at the end of the story, right, they're fighting back and forth because Mm -hmm. Herod Agrippa doesn't want responsibility for this Jew's death, nor does the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate want, you know, his responsibility for his death because this has the potential of a riot. This has a potential for the peace not to be kept, and that threatens their rule. That's I find really helpful for people to begin to appreciate. Okay, what's the context that we're finding ourselves in? And why are they trying to pass the buck? And why are they trying to keep the peace, but yet they'll be incredibly harsh? Uh, Steve, anything you want to add to that before we move on? Just want to point out that Luke actually tells us why Jesus is t- telling this parable too, right? Because people uh, expected the kingdom of God to appear immediately or at once, right? So, what you see is there, there is this theme. Now, if you didn't know, Andy, I know you know, but some of our listeners may not know that Luke actually wrote two books. What we call the Gospel of Luke is the first of the two volumes. And then he wrote the second volume, which is the book of Acts. And when you read those two, what you see is uh, in the book of Acts, what you see is even after Jesus is resurrected, the disciples still don't get it because they're expecting a military Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. So they ask him, so Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, are are we going to oust the Romans and are we going to live as a free nation? What's going on here? And you see the same kind of a theme here is people are expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. Like Jesus is in Jerusalem or near to Jerusalem and he's going to do something magnificent to overthrow Rome so we can live as a free nation instead of being under the sort of the imperial rule of Rome or Greeks or Persians or what have you, because that is what they've come just come through. And they're, again, finding themselves under the colonial imperial rule of Rome. And so this is what Jesus is telling the story of a man, the nobleman goes away to be appointed king. And then he comes back and then he calls the servants to account, which means, you know, like there's going to be some delay here. There, It's not going to happen right away. So this is that's part of the story here of what's being told. Exactly. That's the reason he's telling this is he's gonna he's gonna challenge that view, but he's gonna challenge it. I'd argue in a deep way here, as he's gonna tell a story where he's using a king that's not a good king. Jesus will often do this, by the way, in parables where he'll spin things in a way to challenge you, where. The person that you would think would be the hero isn't always the hero in the story. Uh, The Good Samaritan is is a great example of this. And so, here you've got a moment where we're talking about a king that the subjects hated. And we read that in verse 14. And we've got this historical context that this has happened a couple times, which, by the way, you can read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22 that this is the reason that Jesus' family didn't go back to Bethlehem, that they didn't go back to uh, Jerusalem is because it says specifically that Archelaus was leader at that time and he was so ruthless that they went farther. They went to Galilee. Again, these are such important aspects of reading the whole story. You start to put more of these pieces together than just jumping right into one section and going, wow, that doesn't make any sense. So, here's this king that's hated and we're told then that they're given money and some of them invest that money, and some of them don't invest that money. And by them, you mean the servants. Thank you. The Yes, the servants. And we're told that this king is a harsh king, that, he, that the servants know that he's harsh. And so, you kind of have this expectation that, okay, you know that this king is harsh, then that should be your motivation to invest this money Uh and by the way, we see that there's 10 servants that, that give money, but it only the story just hones in on these three individuals. One that, that's able to make a lot with it, one who makes a you know, moderate sum with it, and then one who makes nothing with it because they're afraid. 
They just leave it. They don't want anything to happen. In fact, we read in verse 21, I, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you, and you reap what you don't sow. By the way, which translation were you reading one from, Steve? I was reading from ESV. I switched to NIV. I figured that's yeah. what you're reading from. <laughs> so sorry, listeners. I, I'm using NIV. Steve and I haven't, uh, we, we didn't coordinate which, which I'm translation. I'm reading NIV now. So yeah, hard man, <laughs> severe man. The idea is the same. Yes. This is a harsh guy. And this is then where we get into the key passage, if you will, is in, is in verse 22, where Jesus begins to pull out why he's telling you the story about this harsh king. Now, I think we have to be careful, Steve, don't you, that uh, immediately we start reading something like this and we want to say, place Jesus as, oh, he's the king that's being talked about here. And then we start having these troubles, though, because uh, there's some aspects that could make sense, you know, a man of noble birth uh, that went to a distant country. So, we'll, we'll catch some of these. We're like, okay, well, that one would make sense. But then there's these other aspects that these aren't making sense. Let's just keep that tension in mind for a moment because we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think we need to be careful that we're not just trying to fit this parable into a mold of how I, what I was expecting Jesus to be teaching. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's this key passage then, verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. So, this king, this harsh king, is upset with his servant because why? Jesus is saying, here's the logic, right? You knew this guy was a hard man that I take out what I did not put in and I reap what I did not sow. So, why did you not put my money on deposit so when I came back, I could collect it with interest? So, let's begin to put that into context of why Jesus is telling this parable in the first place. Because he's near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The people are currently under a harsh rule, which by the way, this starts to become poignant, especially when you see that we just looked at Zacchaeus, because when Rome comes to power, there are certain things that the prefect would keep under his control, but there are other things that they would farm out. And specifically, they farmed out to the Sanhedrin, which is this Jewish ruling body, and one of them was tax collection. And so, you begin to get this idea that there is harsh rule that's taking place by both the Romans, and I think that would have been, specifically, that would have been obvious to the hearers of this because they would have known that history of the king going to Rome to seek approval to be the king and that there's a delegation that is opposed to him being the king. But we're also in the midst of reading the Gospels, we're seeing that this is taking place in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders are opposing Jesus as well, or they're opposing anybody who is a threat to their rule is probably a better way of putting that, and that they'll do anything. Now, notice this, that we see that the Romans will do whatever it takes killing people, and they're plotting against Jesus to have him killed, that they'll do the same, and Jesus plays this out at the end. With a harsh king, what are they going to do? Uh, at the end, if you're not putting their their money to work. And, and again, this is the key here, that you're waiting for this kingdom to appear, but Jesus is challenging them, saying, but what are you doing right now? I mean, even if it's a harsh king, you know, so a servant would know that they should be investing, you know, their money. How are you investing your money? We see this was Zacchaeus, but how are you investing your life? How is this affecting the way that you're living as you're waiting for this kingdom to come. Now, we know how harsh kings treat those who are in opposition, and, and how is that? This king says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That is exactly what uh, Archelaus did. That's exactly what you get with the kings that they're used to, whether that be Herod or that be Rome or, or whoever. And then we're also seeing this taking place with the Jewish religious leaders, that they're, they're behaving in the same sorts of ways. Well, you begin to ask this question, okay, then, then what's Jesus going to be like? Because don't get me wrong that there's aspects in this story that are still similar to Jesus. He is also a man of noble birth that comes from a distant country. 
He's appointed to be king, and those people don't want him to be king. Specifically, the Jewish religious leaders don't want him to be king. What are they willing to do to him? They're willing to murder him. But if we kept with Jesus being the thread of that story, you could still apply this idea that there's judgment coming, but what does that look like? Particularly, what is this kingdom going to look like? Well, we keep reading what's going to happen, and we see that Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And what takes place? After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say that the Lord needs it. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead uh, went and found it just as it, as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked, Okay, why, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen, and saying, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And what do we see? Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and, and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you on the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And what you begin to see is Jesus is weeping over them. Why? Does he want them brought out in front of him to be slaughtered? No. He wants peace. He wants people to be saved, but he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming, and you could say this, I guess, in two ways. One, he knows what's coming because we know that the people are going to rebel against Rome, and we know that the Romans are absolutely going to decimate the people and utterly destroy them and destroy the temple. But we also know that God's judgment is coming and that there will be judgment uh, upon the wicked. And so, the, there's both of these things that are that are at tension, I would say, where Jesus is, is mourning over the people in whom he desires peace. Now, Steve, I want to say one more thing, and then, I, and then I want to hear your thoughts on this. And what I want to throw in here is just, this is an, one of those aspects that's important when we're reading a passage like this, that there are these moments, and this happens often with Jesus, where he'll be quoting a, a section of Scripture in another place, and that this is going to be in key, a key aspect to interpreting what's going on. And what we see here is from a passage in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. You want to read that, Steve? Just before I read it, notice what Jesus is writing on. He specifically asked for a colt, like a donkey, people would have seen this, right? Like, and people, uh, the Jewish people, they, they were, knew their Bible. They knew their Bible. They were saturated in uh, what we call the Old Testament, and that's what they grew, grew up on. This symbolism is not missed on them when Jesus is in a, in essence, Jesus is enacting some of these prophecies that were spoken years ago, and he's fulfilling them in riding a donkey. And this is what it says in Zechariah nine, nine and ten. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, if you notice, again, Jesus is writing 
on a donkey, right? And he's coming through the, the east gate and he's approaching Jerusalem in Luke's account. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because of their hard-heartedness, because of their rejection of who Jesus is. Because it's not going to be long from that time that the Jews there are going to be crying out for Jesus's blood, crucify him, crucify him, right? In fact, there there have been some, I remember sitting in the, um, the hermeneutics class way back when I was in Bible school. And one of the things that they point out is, how is it? It's funny because on the one hand, when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, you read accounts of people waving their you know, palm branches, you know, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like they're all totally in love with Jesus and who he is. And, but it's only like a week later that they're like, crucify him, kill this guy, right? Like why, why, why that sudden, sudden change? And one of the things that my professor pointed out was, well, you know, you have lots of different kinds of Jewish people there from all different regions, people from, the Galilean region would have seen what Jesus has done and they were a lot more supportive of Jesus. People in the Jews in Jerusalem, they were a bit different in, in terms of their attitude towards Jesus and things like that. And so what what you see then is people, the Jews in Jerusalem, they were like set against Jesus because Jesus was challenging the temple, which is their center of worship, their, their life as the Jewish people. The temple is the central thing, and Jesus is challenging that, right? And he's talking about how, yeah, this is all going to be destroyed, which later came to be fulfilled, and so on and so forth. And so here's Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, and he is all about peace. And that's the picture, in a sense, what you were saying earlier, like what kind of a ruler is he going to be? He's demonstrating that. Right, a lot like what Ezekiel did, because Ezekiel was appointed by God to basically act out a lot of his prophecies, right? Lying on one side for years, or you know, preaching naked, or something like that. I'm just like, I'm glad God doesn't tell me to do these things. But um, but anyway, after Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas, he is decidedly saying, "This is the kind of a king that I yeah. am." Which I think is so important that here you see a story of a harsh king, and uh, and I think it's just important for us to understand that you know they're they're waiting for this kingdom to appear, right? So they're waiting for this kingdom to appear, and and Jesus is really challenging them, saying, "Okay, but what are you actually doing right now as you wait for this kingdom to appear?" Because even the servants who serve a harsh king understand that they should be in, investing their time and effort and money. Uh, appropriately into that moment when the kingdom does appear and when that king does come and is established. But instead of this harsh king, what you have is a king that's coming that is a what we're told is a righteous or good king that brings salvation and is, is coming to bring peace. Now, I don't want to pretend, though, that that means that judgment isn't going to come because it is. A good king judges rightly, and and that means that evil needs to be dealt with appropriately. And so, really then, you get kind of this juxtaposition that's happening between a a harsh king Mm -hmm. and a good king. And for us, I think that when you look at this, I I think that we have the same principle that's that's at stake here. What are you doing as you as you look to the appearing of the kingdom of of Jesus's return in particular you know how how are we living how are we investing our time our money our our the the talents that that God has has given us what what are we doing with that not because we are in service to a, a harsh king but that we're in service to a king of righteousness that's a good king that is a king that's seeking peace and that we want to we want to see that that kingdom of peace established. Yeah, and, and I think that's, in a sense, the frightening part. If you read in the book of Revelation, Jesus appears again, but this time he's on a horse, mm-hmm. which was a sign of war. Mm-hmm. So this is, 
in the book of Revelation, as most people understand, this is supposed to sort of apocalyptically, right, using lots of symbols and imageries to portray the end of history, human history as we know it, uh, as uh, Jesus returns, which we call Perusia, right? Uh, Jesus' second coming. Now, notice when Jesus, in his first coming and when he enters Jerusalem, he comes as a helpless little babe, right? He doesn't come with a war band. He doesn't come with an army. He does. He comes as a helpless little babe. He offers peace, right? As he comes on a donkey entering Jerusalem, he is rejected. And when he goes away, and when he comes back the second time, this time he is going to be on a horse. And it's not like he, uh, it's not like he takes positive delight in destroying sinners. Like if, if that's that's just not the heart of God, right? Here we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because of their hard-heartedness. And you see in other places where Jesus weeping over different, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, and he's like, how I long to gather you like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you just would not listen. And in fact, if you read Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, as surely as I live... I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their ways and live, from their evil ways and live. Like, why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn from your wicked ways. And so that is the heart of God, and that is the heart of Jesus. Like, he takes no pleasure in death of the wicked. Sin has to be judged. Evil has to be vanquished. He would rather see Jerusalem, in this case, turn to him, when he is offering peace, before that the final judgment comes. And I think we should just add this, and what's the cost of that peace that Jesus is committed to? The cost, as we'll see from this gentle king who comes in, is going to be his life. That he comes into Jerusalem uh, on this donkey, you know, on this colt, coming in, in gentleness, and ultimately he'll be slain. He will be murdered on a cross. Why? For peace, for salvation, to be able to offer that peace, to be able to offer that salvation so that it, it be in, in light of the fact that, that judgment is coming and Jesus' desire is to see people saved just like Zacchaeus was saved. Mm-hmm. As, as he turned yeah, his exactly. life around and now as he waits, right, for the kingdom, what is he doing in, in light of that? How is he living in light of that, people, again, if we go back to that parable, people understand how to live like that in, in the face of a harsh ruler. How do you live that way in the face of a peaceful ruler, but a just ruler? And as you say, there is another Jesus that's coming in Revelation. We know, not just on a horse, but with a sword. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that when you watch like a movie or you read a book, you know, it's, it's interesting that we root for that kind of a king, that just king that comes and vanquishes the the evil that has taken over. Yeah. I think about like Robin Hood or something like that, right? You know, you, you root for that. But the problem is, is when you begin to see that you're being pointed at as the wicked one, you stop rooting <laughs> for that just king yeah. because you begin to realize that that justice will come to you. Jesus is weeping, saying, I don't want that to be the case. I want you to come and to find peace, salvation in me. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave off. I hope you enjoyed this, another edition of the AC Podcast. Uh, The AC Podcast is a ministry of of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back in the next couple weeks to talk about these two other passages. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll come back next week.